2: Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and this week, hideous men and the lies they tell. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me, Shayna Roth, senior producer here at Slate. Later in the show, I'll be joined by Slate senior writer, Christina Cotterucci. E. Jean Carroll remembers the old version of Donald Trump. Anderson, we
0: were having a high old time. You remember... Donald Trump, hail fellow, well met, walking up and down the streets of New York, greeting everybody. Everybody liked him. He You're talking about hello. 1995, 1996. 96. He was Shakespearean. He was great. You'd love to see him on the street. So when we met in Bergdorf's and he said, help me, uh, advise me to find a present I was
2: I was thrilled. I thought, this is hilarious. I'm wondering, the statement that he said... That's Carol on Anderson Cooper's CNN show in 2019. Carol was a columnist for Elle magazine, and you can tell just by that clip that she's a vivacious, intelligent woman. She's someone you'd like to go shopping with, have a drink with. But despite that description of Trump in the 90s, Carol goes on to recount her version of what happened when she agreed to help Trump find a present.
0: He was going to get some lingerie. And I am just like, oh, well, I can dine out forever on this story. We're going to go get lingerie. You, go, you say you go up to the, the, the lingerie department and no one is around. And there are two or three boxes on the counter, the fancy, remember the old-fashioned lingerie boxes, and a filmy see-through bodysuit. I used to be a writer at Saturday Night Live. I see an entire sketch of making Donald Trump put this filmy thing over his pants. That is what I'm thinking. So for you, this was kind of a, a New York moment, like oh, one of the those best things. New, uh, just like the best New York. Donald Trump is going to put on a filmy bodysuit. Mm-hmm. It's like oh, I couldn't. So he let's go in the dressing room. And I thought yeah, I'm going to make him put the pants on. Walked in, and the minute I was in there, he shut the door and pushed me up against the wall, and bang, bang my head on the wall. And kiss me. I just, it was so shocking. So he pushed me, you know, he pushed me, held me with the shoulder, and I was wearing a, a coat dress and tights, and he pulled down the tights. And so um, that's what... He pulled what, it with, with, he pulled in, uh, with both hands, with one? One. He, and um, that was when it turned serious. I realized that this was...
2: This was... This was a fight. In 2019, Carol wasn't accusing Trump as part of the Me Too movement. She wasn't part of the trickle of women who came forward before Trump was elected to accuse him of harassment and assault. She had a book coming out called What Do We Need Men For? A Modest Proposal. And she'd been on the cover of New York Magazine with an excerpt titled My List of Hideous Men. On that cover, Carol is wearing a knee-length black coat dress and black tights. On the side, text reads, This is what I was wearing 23 years ago when Donald Trump attacked me in a Bergdorf Goodman dressing room. This week, Carol won a years-long battle against Donald Trump. A jury awarded her $5 million in a civil case. Now, to be clear, while this is largely being called a rape trial, Carol sued Trump for defamation, saying that when he publicly and aggressively denied Carol's rape allegations, that he lied— that he ruined her career. Carol's case comes at a unique time for how society thinks about crimes against women. Carol herself is of the don't talk about it generation, but more and more we're seeing victims' stories amplified. And in some cases, powerful men are being held accountable. At least we want them to be, and some are touting Carol's victory as a sea change. But is it? Christina Cotterucci has been following the Carroll trial and she's been tracking the Me Too movement for years. After the break, we'll talk about the e. Jean Carroll trial, what it means, where we're going, and the use of civil trials for getting justice. Hey there. If you're loving the show, please consider subscribing to our feed. You'll get new episodes of The Waves every Thursday. And while you're scrolling around our feed, you should check out some of our other episodes too. Recently, we've been talking about protecting your kids from diet culture, how to make friends as an adult, and what it's like to be a character actress in Hollywood.
1: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop.
2: Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Shayna Roth, and I'm joined now by Slate senior writer, Christina Cotarucci. Christina, welcome back to The Waves. Thanks. It's so great to be back. I want to start with something that Trump's lawyers hampered on sort of throughout this trial, that E. Jean Carroll didn't scream while she says Donald Trump was pinning her to the wall, pulling down her tights and penetrating her. To me, this is really emblematic of the entire tact that the defense took throughout the trial. These really old school, tale as old as time, rape denial, it's your fault, look what you were wearing, ways of discrediting a woman's story. So in a lot of ways, this trial is very traditional, for lack of a better word. But there are other ways that the trial is reflective of our current time. How do you see that push-pull here? So one of the interesting things about that tack
3: that you were just describing about, oh, why didn't you scream, was Trump's lawyer, Joe Takapina, wasn't saying that because she didn't scream, it was probably consensual. What he was saying was, your entire account is unbelievable. You are making this all up. It never happened. He never met you there. And you're saying you didn't scream because if you told us you screamed, then you're opening up the possibility that a Bergdorf's employee might have heard you. And of course, they wouldn't have because it never happened. And that would make your story seem implausible. So Takapino was saying, even the fact that you wouldn't scream while being raped is itself implausible. So it's the, like you said, tale as old as time... Strategy for combating a rape allegation. But a lot of times, when that line is used, or the comeback that, oh, well, if this was actually rape, you would have screamed, you would have fought, whatever, it's usually used to say this was a sexual encounter that was consensual. That's not what was happening here. But the fact that Eugene Carroll was even able to sue Donald Trump for this alleged rape that happened 30 years ago is a very rare and very modern opportunity that's only possible. Because of a law New York State passed in 2022 that, in response to the Me Too movement and other advocacy on behalf of survivors, allowed alleged survivors a one year window in which the statute of limitations of their alleged violations did not apply. So, even though this happened 30 years ago, and normally the statute of limitations for her to bring a civil suit for battery, which is one of the charges that she's bringing wouldn't have been possible, but she had this one-year window. She took advantage of it, and this was 100% a result of advocacy that has happened in recent years in response to our social reckoning about what it means to bring justice to survivors of sexual assault. The fact that Eugene Carroll came forward at all feels very related to the current moment, just because she has said that the Me Too movement and all the allegations against Harvey Weinstein changed the way she thought about what it means to come forward and what effect that might have. And maybe if I think this is almost a direct quote. What would happen if all women came forward and said what happened to them? Also, the fact that Trump was calling her unattractive and perpetrating a witch hunt on Truth Social, which is this new like Trump social network that is super of the moment, very contemporary and sort of a little microcosm, I think, of the way in which this trial is a mashup of ye old sexist tropes that have been used to discredit survivors of rape and highly present day elements that make this feel like a very relevant and important case for whatever happens next.
2: Yeah, and I think another way that we saw how of the moment this trial is is that you had two other women come forward not to bring their own case against Trump, but to just say that Trump also assaulted me as a means of bolstering Eugene Carroll's claims. And I feel like you don't have that maybe necessarily without the Me Too movement, without seeing women on social media bravely telling their stories of their own assault. You have covered the Me Too movement quite a bit and have really taken a hard look at it. Do you see it influencing this trial or is it more just a natural evolution of where we have come when it comes to rape cases?
3: There's no question in my mind that the Me Too movement has influenced how this trial has played out, in part because <laughs> There's a lot more faith in the news media now that we will see these kinds of allegations as newsworthy and treat them as serious accusation of violence and not just some tawdry tabloid scandal that's more about sex than violence. The two other women, Natasha Stoynoff and Jessica Leeds, they actually came forward about their alleged assaults or in Natasha Stoynoff's case attempted assault before the Me Too movement. They came out in 2016 about a month before the presidential election. But when they told their stories, again, under oath in front of the jury, I have to imagine that a lot more people now post me to have the knowledge to understand how survivors of rape and assault act and react for generations because the justice system and law enforcement and news media and political structures, they were all established and run by men. There was an incentive to create this idea of a perfect rape victim who very few actual survivors could actually match up to. So there was a lot of suspicion around people who didn't scream, didn't call the police, didn't run to a hospital, didn't tell their parents or their boss, or if they saw their rapist out in public after, were cordial to him. That idea was really deeply ingrained in the public psyche and also in law, such that in a lot of places, it couldn't be considered rape if it wasn't violent, for instance. But because of the Me Too movement, and I credit Christine Blasey Ford and the Kavanaugh hearings with this too, there are a lot more people who can now hear those notes of skepticism that are being raised by Joe Tacopina, who was really hammering on how strange it supposedly was that Eugene Carroll wouldn't have called the police. And they might think, you know what, I can actually understand how she might not have thought the police would have done anything or not wanted to spend the next several months of her life reliving that moment and telling dozens of different people who were poised to disbelieve her what had happened just to have them make her feel like it was her fault. And maybe it doesn't seem that far-fetched that she might have just wanted to put it behind her. That's not suspicious. I think it's because we heard from so many survivors of harassment and assault during the Me Too movement that it's driven home not just how common these kinds of violations are, but also how many different ways there are to respond to them in the moment and afterwards. So I imagine that for members of the jury, but also members of the public who are following this trial, it'll affect how they interpret her allegations. I also think it affected how E. Jean Carroll saw that incident, too. She didn't come forward until after the Me Too movement. And even over the course of Several months of sort of reiterating her story in a variety of news outlets, it felt like the way she interpreted it was changing, too. I think she has said that she tried not to think about it for a really long time, even in the moment after it allegedly happened when she reached out to these two friends the response of one of them was, what just happened to you was rape? Because she was kind of trying to play it off as a joke to make herself feel better. The other friend said, yeah, but Trump is going to bury you in lawsuits. This was way before he was president, but he was a very powerful real estate magnate and a public figure. That person was probably right and still is. And E. Jean Carroll, this is the defamation part, has been inundated with insults, threats. She lost her job. So... I think it changed the calculus for E. Jean Carroll of, is it worth it to risk all that? It was probably related to the Me Too movement and the fact that Donald Trump became president. And what an insult that must have been to see her alleged rapist reach that position of power, even after dozens of other women had shared similar stories about him.
2: I feel like just because of who E. Jean Carroll is personality-wise, she may be one of the most important people to have ever come forward and accuse someone of rape. And I say that because she does not come across as what the perfect rape victim or the perfect victim of assault, because she is a very boisterous, she's funny, she is a very big personality. And when she talks about what happened, particularly when I think back to the Anderson Cooper interview that she did in 2019, a lot of her story, she's laughing. She's got tangents. She's talking about how Donald Trump was bigger than life. And wouldn't this be a fun story? And then how it changed on an instant and she couldn't believe it. And you see somebody whose coping mechanism is humor. And I feel like we don't see that Publicly enough. And I think that's important for people realizing that there's so many different ways to deal with this type of trauma. Totally. And she was a public figure too at the
3: time. She hosted, I believe it was a talk show on TV. She was an advice columnist for many years. She had really honed this voice and was somebody who had a, a lot of experience speaking in public. And so, unlike The other accusers who have come forward with stories about Donald Trump, she had experience making stories into sort of bite-sized anecdotes that are digestible and fun to consume for people. And so you're right. She does use a lot of humor. She did that on the stand, too. You know, when her own legal team, when they were direct examining her, they were trying to bring up a bunch of things. This is a very common legal strategy that the defense might bring up to try to discredit her. So they were saying, what would you say to somebody who said, oh, you did this all for attention or whatever? And she said, I would much rather have attention for making a great three bean salad. It's not something that I would want to be known for having survived a rape. Because of her personality, I mean, to me, it makes things feel very believable. It makes her seem more credible because she's not trying to hide that part of herself. It also makes a lot of sense to me why she might be the kind of person who would want to put this behind her and not make it into a big thing at the time, tell the police about it, and become a public figure who is known for this. Because for her, she had cultivated this image, both in public and for herself, of being very strong and indomitable and also flirty and casual. And <laughs> Which isn't to say that being raped would negate any of those things, but there is a sense and a tendency that has been encouraged in terms of our interpretation of rape victims, that it is something that makes you seem weak, makes you seem like maybe you brought it upon yourself. Or once you try to bring forward an allegation, you're unserious and you're overly dramatic and it changes the way people see you. And so it's actually been really powerful for me to watch the way she's leaned into this story over the past three years since she came forward about it and not tried to hide the part of her personality that still is able to joke while sharing an incredibly
2: painful story. We're going to take a break here, but if you want to hear more from Christina and myself on another topic, check out our Slate Plus segment. Today, we're talking about Marla Maples and another great piece from Christina called Not My Type. You won't want to miss that. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to Slate.com thewavesplus The Waves Plus. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Shayna Roth, and I'm joined with Slate senior writer Christina Cotarucci. Christina... The Eugene Carroll case is not the first time in the last couple years that we've seen allegations of abuse play out in a civil court as opposed to a criminal court. The one that I think immediately comes to mind is the Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial, which was also for defamation. Depp actually sued Heard for an op-ed she wrote on surviving domestic violence without mentioning Depp by name. Heard then countersued. Depp basically won quote unquote, the trial by getting 10 million in compensatory damages and 5 million in punitive damages. While Heard won her countersuit that Depp defamed her through his attorney by calling Heard's abuse claims a hoax, but she only got 2 million. So at the end of the day, the sort of headlines was that Johnny Depp came out the winner in that whole messy court drama. Christina, what do you make of these very public uses of the civil court in cases of rape and domestic violence?
3: It really just goes to show that our current systems of law enforcement and so-called justice are failing survivors of gender-based violence. They're just not set up to deal with these cases. And in the case of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, as well as the case of E. Jean Carroll and Donald Trump, they became very public such that they were being discussed in the press by public figures with huge followings. And so they developed a route for defamation suits. In a way that a regular old person accusing someone of rape within their community might not reach the level of, oh, you defamed this person such that their reputation was harmed and whatever, because it simply might not reach enough people to harm somebody's reputation in a way that was actually injurious. But the way that Johnny Depp was able to weaponize the defamation charge against Amber Heard was extremely troubling. The verdicts were disturbing. And the public discussion around it was too. I mean, loads of Johnny Depp's fans came out to smear Amber Heard. TikTok became a cesspool of people mocking her. This would all suggest that a survivor of gender-based violence can never speak about what happened to her without the risk of being sued for everything she's worth and having the result depend on whether or not a random sampling of her peers, which is what a jury is, for better or for worse, believes her story, which We know that for all the accomplishments of the Me Too movement, people are often primed to disbelieve a woman who alleges domestic violence or sexual assault. So it's extraordinarily worrisome. It will absolutely have a chilling effect on people's willingness to share information about what they've been through. One could also say the same for alleged perpetrators, that they can't defend themselves from spurious charges without risking a defamation suit. I don't want to say that that is a frivolous concern. I think it absolutely is. And people should be able to defend themselves from lies that are being spread against them. But it still is the case. The Johnny Depp Amber Heard case is very different from Eugene Carroll and Donald Trump in ways that I'm sure we'll get into next just because of who Donald Trump is and who E.G. Carroll is. But it's still the case that the system is set up to favor alleged perpetrators of gender-based violence. We still live in a sexist society, not to mention it also depends on what kind of a judge you get. The judge in the Donald Trump E. Jean Carroll case has really had no patience for Trump's attorney trying to reiterate the same point over and over again about why didn't she call the police or whatever. He's been very impatient with Trump's attorneys waffling on whether or not Donald Trump is going to testify. He's gotten mad that Donald Trump was posting on Truth Social about the case, which you're really not supposed to be trying to influence the jury from your personal social media accounts while the case is in progress. So that was lucky. It feels like the judge has a really level head about this kind of stuff. You can imagine that a judge that was predisposed to the worldview that is skeptical of alleged survivors of sexual assault might react very differently to a case where there is some wiggle room in terms of how the
2: facts and evidence are being interpreted and what gets brought forward or not. So sort of jumping off of that, you had a great piece that I want to dig into about the Carroll and Trump trial titled Lie Detector. Donald Trump, I think it's fair to say, is a notorious liar. There have been research done about how many lies he told throughout his presidency. It was in the dozens per day. And in your piece, you talk about how this trial all comes down to who the jury believes, Carol or Trump. And this isn't unique to this trial. This is what happened in the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp trial. This is what's going to happen in this trial. This is what happens in all of these cases where you don't have a lot of physical smoking gun evidence. It comes down to who the jury believes. But here, one of the parties is an infamous liar. So talk us through what you were hoping people got out of that piece. So first of all, this case
3: is different from a criminal trial where if there's not a lot of evidence, it's very likely the defendant will be deemed innocent just because you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. A civil case, a personal lawsuit, which is what this is, is different. The jury is ruling based on a different burden of proof, which is known as preponderance of the evidence, basically means that if even 51% of the evidence would support Carol's claims the jury should find in her favor. So you're basically just judging two claims against each other, and whichever has the most evidence, that thing wins. It doesn't have to be beyond a reasonable person's ability to doubt it. So when I thought about this, that question of who does the evidence support just seems completely ludicrous to me. Obviously, I'm glad it's all being heard out in court, but really 100% of this case, as you said, is about who is lying here. You have two stories. One is backed up. Carol's side, by two contemporaneous witnesses who said she reached out to them right after the rape, plus two other women who said he did versions of the same thing to them in forcing himself on them sexually. Plus, there's a video that was able to be introduced into evidence, the Access Hollywood tape, where he is caught on a hot mic saying he does it.
1: And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Whatever you want. Grab him by the pussy. (laughs) I can do anything.
3: The other side is one of the most lyingest public officials this country has ever seen who didn't even bother to mount a defense. Literally, the defense rested when it was their turn. They didn't bring a single witness. Donald Trump didn't even show up. If you're judging the relative credibility of these two people, it's just not a contest at all. And so, when I wrote that piece, I wanted to point out that this could be a way in which Trump's reputation and history of lying and misogyny actually catches up with him if the jury takes all of that into account in the evidence that has been produced. But it's not just about this specific allegation and what he has to say about that. The jury really has to make an assessment of the character of the two parties in the case because they have to decide who to believe. The fact that the Access Hollywood tape is evidence here, I think, could be a really powerful swaying mechanism for the jury because you're hearing it directly out of his mouth in private. So it wasn't even that he was saying it to be some sort of character, although you can argue, I guess, that we're always a character when we interface with another human. But it doesn't feel like Donald Trump is even trying to prove himself to be someone who wouldn't do this. And if you're wondering who has the incentive to lie here, too, it's not Eugene Carroll. It's not the two women who put their lives on hold to show their faces in a courtroom to say, actually, he did something very similar to me, although it wasn't rape. It's Donald Trump. And is he somebody who has proven himself to be truthful and coming at an argument in good faith? Does he seem actually disgusted by this crime? Or does he actually seem like he doesn't care about it? The tape, of his deposition which we'll talk about in the slate plus segment <laughs> really shows that he doesn't really seem to care and he is not even able to disavow sexual assault as an act and so it's just funny to me to think that this jury is going to be asked to like sit down and solemnly contemplate the question of do we think Donald Trump is lying here
2: so the jury did come back in this case and they found that Carol was telling the truth, and they sided with her. How do you feel this will influence other civil trials that are about allegations of harassment and sexual assault or domestic violence, or just the Me Too movement in general? In one sense, I think this
3: trial stands alone. There's nobody like Donald Trump. He is a very particular person, both in his history of misogyny and lying, which was able to be brought to bear in this case, his extremely public history, which hardly anybody has as documented a track record of untruthfulness and misogyny as Donald Trump, and in terms of how polarizing he is for the American public. So people who hate him really hate him. People who love him really love him. It's really a crapshoot what percentage of those groups you end up having on your jury. But in another sense, the fact that in the face of so much discouragement and threats and insults and being smeared in the press by somebody with possibly the most rabid fan base in America, went ahead and took on one of the most powerful people in America and influential people in America. And one is setting a great precedent that I really hope encourages other people to do the same when it's warranted. I doubt we'll see another person like Donald Trump In our lifetimes, I feel like I just jinxed us as a country, but it's been the case for as long as there have been rape trials that people in positions of power aren't likely to be held to account. They're not likely to be able to force to answer for what they've done, and they're certainly not likely to see consequences for what they've done. The way Donald Trump approached this case really felt like he did not believe it was possible that he would be able to see a consequence from his action. It's kind of just the way he acts in life, too, as in part because he hasn't seen a lot of consequences. As far as the Me Too movement, I mean just the publicity that this trial has gotten, the way people have been able to absorb what Jessica Leeds, Natasha Stoinoff, and Eugene Carroll said on the stand, and how Joe Taco Pina tried to discredit them and the way the jury didn't fall for it, didn't fall for Tacopino's arguments, I think is powerful in a changing the way people think kind of a way. It's just another reminder that, again, there are a lot of different ways to react to an alleged sexual assault. There's a lot of different reasons why people might or might not come forward. And it's really heartening to me that the jury here Saw through the skepticism from Trump's side and ruled in a way that I thought did justice to the
2: evidence that was brought forward by Eugene Carroll. Christina Coarucci, Senior Staff writer for Slate. It is always a pleasure to have you on the waves.
3: Yeah, it was great to be here. Thanks, Shayna.
2: That's our show this week. The Waves is produced by myself, Shayna Roth, and Tori Dominguez. Daisy Rosario is senior supervising producer at Slate, and Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Email us at, the waves at Slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place. Thank you so much for being a Slate Plus member. And since you're a member, you get this weekly segment. Today, Christina and I are talking about Donald Trump's type. Heavy air quotes on that one. We talked a bit in the main segment about Donald Trump not taking the stand. But I want to focus on a specific part of all this. It's a video in which Donald Trump is looking at a photograph. And this all takes place during Donald Trump's deposition for this case. So what happens in a civil trial is that you can sit down different parties and make them answer a bunch of questions, but it's not taking place in the courtroom during the trial. You use this for, you know, cross-examination material, for everybody to get their stories on the record, things like that. Anyway, so in this video, Trump is looking at a photograph and he confuses Eugene Carroll for his ex-wife, Marla Maples. And do you recall when you first saw this photo?
1: At some point during the process, I saw it. That's, uh, I guess, her husband, John Johnson, who was an anchor for ABC. Nice guy. I thought, I mean, I don't know him, but I thought he was pretty good at what he did. Um, I don't even know who the woman, let's see. I don't know who, it's Marla. You say Marla's in this photo? That's Marla, yeah. That's it's my
0: wife. Which woman are you pointing to? No. Here.
1: Uh, the uh, person oh. you just pointed to was oh, Eugene
0: Carroll. Who
2: is that? Who so is that? Christina, what did you make of this video when you first saw it? So it's funny because I
3: had read about this video, this part of his deposition, when it was shown in the courtroom, but it wasn't actually released until a few days after the jury saw it. So we all actually got to see a video of him doing it. And the first thing I thought was, like, are you kidding me? <laughs> they don't look alike. <laughs> also, he's standing next to Ivana, who was his wife at the time. So why would Marla Maples be in that photo? The other thing is, before he tries to identify the person who is E. Jean Carroll, but who he calls Marla Maples, he says, "Oh yeah, that's John Johnson, um Eugene Carroll's husband." So why would it be Marla Maples next to Eugene Carroll's husband? So, it's like clearly kind of funny, also disturbing, but then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, I actually don't believe he thinks that was Marla Maples because this photo has been circulating ever since Eugene Carroll made her allegation against him because she had said, "Oh, We ran into each other at this department store and we recognized each other because we had met before. Also, you know, we're both sort of public figures in New York, blah, blah, blah. We were talking. He said, I had never met her before in my life. That part is a lie. So then I don't know if she produced or somebody produced this photo that shows both of them talking to each other as sort of proof that, yes, they had met. This photo was taken in the 80s. She said the attack took place in the 90s. So he's had years to look at this photo. 100% 100% his lawyers have showed it to him and said, you know, they're going to bring this up at the trial. This is you talking to Eugene Carroll. So what could he be thinking? I have a couple theories. One is that his lawyer said, just say you don't even recognize who that person is. And so he, he as you heard in the clip, starts to say that, oh, I don't know who. But then did he f- maybe forget that he was just supposed to stop there and he can't stop talking? So then he said it was Marla Maples as like a... Trying to be like, oh, I actually can't tell women apart. All, like, blonde women look the same to me. Or did he just not remember at all any kind of... That was
2: just some of our Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to Slate.com slash The Waves Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Slate.com slash The Waves Plus.
1: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants.